Flying saucers are headed to Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Yes, more of the Red Planet this week. How'd you like that inflammatory opening line? It's almost accurate, as we'll hear from Rob Manning. Rob returns to tell us about the system that may help us get much bigger spacecraft down to the surface of Mars, spacecraft that may someday carry humans. Bill Nye is also all about fourth rock as he mentions more innovation from SpaceX. Bruce Betts and I will take a virtual trip down under for this week's What's Up. We begin as we should with Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, welcome back. You have a question for me. That's a switch. Yeah, Matt. So my question is, and I'm here, I'm taking on the role of Bruce Betts' random space facts, which (laughs) is the moon in the solar system with the densest atmosphere? Oh, well, everybody knows that. It's uh, it's Titan, that that, that, uh, smoggy moon out at uh, Saturn. Where's my T-shirt? All right. Well, that was a softball just to warm you up. Now, what's the second densest? Okay. Now, I know a lot of moons have something like an atmosphere. I mean, even our own moon, I I know they've detected gases, but I I don't know. I bet you've written about this, though. (laughs) I have indeed. Some space fans may know that there is another moon that has an atmosphere that we've seen geysers into and being blown away, and that one is Triton, a moon of Neptune. It's not nearly as thick as Titan's, but it is an atmosphere. There is wind there. But I think even the biggest space fans would have a really hard time guessing what the next couple were. There are, in fact, two more moons that have atmospheres that are dense enough for their molecules to collide with each other and create wind and weather and climate. The first one of those is Io, whose atmosphere is partially supported by its volcanoes spewing stuff out into space, but is more supported by sulfur dioxide frost turned into gas during the day. And then there is a newly discovered fourth moon atmosphere out there. And it's got to be the most unlikely body I could ever have imagined. It's Callisto. Oh, and this is the one that you've only just learned about, right? Yeah, that's right. So Callisto is the outermost large moon of Jupiter. It's generally regarded as one of the deadest moons in the solar system. It's got this really ancient surface. And as it turns out, it also has a very, very thin, but still possibly windy atmosphere made of oxygen gas. This uh, must have come as a surprise to a lot of people. How did you find out about it? Well, this is something that I'm kind of proud of. You know, most people find out their space news by reading press releases where institutions write up stories and then everybody else writes an article about those stories. (laughs) But I find stories a lot of the time just by reading tables of contents of professional journals. It's out there in the public for everybody to see. And I saw this title that said an atmosphere at Callisto. And I said, Callisto? (laughs) I downloaded the paper and I read it. And by gosh, they reported the discovery of an atmosphere at Callisto. And I'm the only one who wrote about it because I'm the only one who was reading that table of contents, evidently. (laughs) I bet now that you've written about it, and it is in full disclosure, it is in an April 8th blog entry at planetary.org, which I actually did read. Now that uh, Emily's put it out there, I bet it's showing up other places as well. That does seem to be the way things work. There is much much more here. If you are curious about atmospheres on moons, uh, this is the uh, the place to go this week. Uh, I hope that you're going to add some mention later of uh, Endor, Pandora, the other uh, moons with atmospheres that are waiting out there for us to discover, Emily. I'll let you do that, Matt. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. She is, of course, our senior editor, planetary evangelist for the Planetary Society, and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine, Emily Lakdawalla. Let's check in with Bill Nye. 
Bill, a week has passed since our uh, long conversation about the Humans Orbiting Mars workshop. It seems, though, that uh, we aren't the only ones talking about going to Mars. That's right. The NASA Advisory Council had a big meeting, and they talked about putting off decisions. But the big thing that they did talk about was getting life support systems on the International Space Station that could go for three years. The International Space Station is resupplied quite often. By often, I mean big rockets take stuff up there. But if you're on your way to and from Mars, there's no, you can't do that. There's no resupply. <laughs> uh-huh. So this is a, a very important thing that Bill Gerstenmeyer talked about at this NASA Advisory Council. And it, I'm glad it's on, on the way. So no matter what people decide to do, have an orbital mission, as the Planetary Society uh, investigated, let's call it investigated, uh, that looks quite possible, or uh, you really go for the go for the big prize and try to land on Mars, or you abandon the whole thing, you still want to have this ability to live in space, if I may, indefinitely uh, on self-supporting life support. It's, just, it's, a big, it's a big thing. So at least they're talking about it. And meanwhile, Elon Musk and SpaceX, their goal, their big goal is to go to Mars. And yep. they're going to try again. You know, and the, the big thing is to lower the cost of getting into space. That's SpaceX's mission or one of their uh, big objectives. I love Elon's statement that he will not sell public shares in SpaceX until his regular shuttle service is running to Mars. That's probably a ways off. That's something to keep in mind. <laughs> yes, right. You can buy shares in Tesla, though, if you want to invest in his uh, big ideas. Yes. Along this line, uh, the lowering the cost to low Earth orbit was is a step into getting to Mars, in his view, which I think is pretty reasonable. And they're going to try again to land their booster on a barge. This is the coolest idea. So, to, in other words, they want to reuse the first stage of the rocket by having it gently land on a barge out in the ocean downrange from Cape Canaveral. It's, uh, it's very cool. Now, when people hear this, they will know whether Elon and company have been successful at that, at that or not. As we speak, it's still up in the air, maybe literally. Tended, yes. <laughs> so uh, it's a very exciting time. It's all these people are really talking about really mounting a mission to Mars and really making the necessary steps. Life support? lowering the cost to orbit. These are, these are big ideas. We will talk about these big ideas, by the way, while we're listening to this at the uh, Space Symposium in Colorado Springs, which is always, Matt, to me, is just amazing. There's all these Air Force people, all these industry people, people that make huge rockets, walking around, talking about space exploration and doing deals. It's really exciting. It's good to be part of the conversation. I'm sorry you won't be part of the conversation at the Planetary Defense Conference, where I will be in Rome, but uh, good to know that uh, there'll be another Planetary Society contingent at uh, Space Symposium. Have, have a great time there. Yeah, and you have a great time in Italy. And uh, enjoy the food and the coffee. Carry on. Grazie. Ciao. Ciao. <laughs> That's Bill Nye. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society, who uh, joins us most weeks here on the radio show. Back in a minute to talk about getting down to Mars with the guy who is the world's greatest expert on that topic. It's always exciting to see what is happening in the high bay at the Jet Propulsion Lab. 
the Mammoth Clean Room has been the birthplace for scores of history-making robotic spacecraft. When I entered the observation level a few days ago, a huge disk was starting to spin below me. Bunny-suited engineers watched as the six-meter-wide SIAD-R began this test. SIAD, that's the Supersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Decelerator. Someday, something like a SIAD, along with an equally innovative supersonic parachute and rocket engines, may allow men and women to walk on Mars. Much work remains before that day comes. One of the leaders of this work stood with me above the high bay. Rob Manning has joined us several times, always to talk about how to land machines safely on the Red Planet. Rob is now chief engineer for the low-density supersonic decelerator system that includes two versions of SIADs. Minutes later, we sat down in a nearby conference room. Rob, it is great to get you back on Planetary Radio. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be back with you. (laughs) Years ago, we sat across a table like this, and you told me, we have hit the ceiling of what current technology can do to get us down to the surface of Mars. You know, airbags, sky cranes, it all worked great. Thank you. But you said, we're not sure what we're going to do next. That's true. Has that been solved? Well, we are in the process of solving it. I think what's really exciting is that the realization of this limitation, I mean, and not just for, I mean, think about this. We're, I'm, I'm talking about limitation for robotics. We have a rover on Mars, Curiosity rover, about 900 kilograms, about what we call a little under a metric ton, 1,000 kilograms. We'd like, in our in vision, we'd like to not just send something bigger than a rover, for example, a, a vehicle that would have a rocket on top that would take samples from Mars and to put it into Mars orbit. We'd love to do that. We think that's going to weigh a lot more than Curiosity. But our mm-hmm. entry descent landing system is a bit limited. Um, we, with the technology we've been using now for the last 20, 30, 40 years has all been based on the Viking uh, engineering work that was done in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And that has been wonderful. We, we've been capitalizing on those tests and developments for all these years. In fact, most people don't really realize that the only place that large supersonic parachutes have been used in the last 20 years is on Mars. <laughs> we, they don't, we don't need them here. We live in this big, thick soup of an atmosphere. Yeah. So, yeah, and so, so I'm saying, hey, we're having a hard time getting uh, rovers, bigger rovers, bigger vehicles on Mars. We need them. Uh, but don't we want to land people there someday? Is there, are there, there has been some talk about that of late. Yeah, and so I've heard I, that. Yeah, so I thought maybe um, that problem should be solved too. Now, um, I'm not saying that the technologies that we're using and testing today are directly going to be used for human landings. But we have to push this envelope and figure out how to get larger masses to the surface of Mars. So, so what we're aiming for with this mission is something, uh, something at least to double the capability of the interdescent landing system for, uh, that Curiosity used to land on Mars. And we're doing that with, with two new aerodynamic decelerator tricks that we pulled out of our sleeves here. One trick is an inflatable donut that inflates around the perimeter of the space capsule. So this vehicle, remember now, we come in at uh, very high speeds, uh, 13,000 miles an hour to the top of the Mars atmosphere, and we use a heat shield going very fast to slow us down. The heat shield protects us against the incredible forces and heat of that atmosphere as, as the vehicles. Even that thin atmosphere. Well, yeah, when you're moving that fast, the, the energy transfer goes as the square velocity. And so mm-hmm. the velocity is already so high, when you multiply time itself, it gets to be a really big number. <laughs> so not that different, really, than entering on Earth um, way up high. So even though it's very thin collectively, Mars' atmosphere is a bit like Earth's 
atmosphere if you were to land 120,000 feet above the ground mm-hmm. on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the atmosphere above that is very Mars-like, very similar. So that's so one trick is this donut. The second trick is a larger supersonic parachute. Now, the parachute that we used to land Curiosity rover was about 21 meters in diameter. That's about the size of the largest supersonic parachute ever tested on this planet back in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the te- these very expensive tests. Now, how do, you, how do you test these parachutes, larger parachutes, in, the, in this new inflatable donut called the Supersonic Aerodynamic Inflatable Decelerator, or SIAD for short. How do you test these on Earth? Well, the place to do it is to do your entry process way up high above Earth's atmosphere, and you try to slow down uh, way above 120,000 feet. And that's exactly what we're doing this summer. And also did last summer when this system was tested over in the skies over Hawaii, right? Yes. Which partly worked great. But it's both elements of this system that you just described, right? Because yeah. there's a lot of attention is given to these the donuts that you describe, also known as the flying saucers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but the parachute seems to be just as important a component. Well, in fact, they kind of go together. So imagine you're trying imagine you're trying to land the space shuttle at 120,000 feet. Now, when the space shuttle is entering Earth. At 120,000 feet, it's going very fast. It's mm. going uh, several times the speed of sound, maybe four, five, six times the speed of sound. That's at the point where you're supposed to be at zero miles per hour on the surface of Mars. I mean, so the whole trick of landing is, is making sure you come to a stop before you hit the ground. That's the whole it's trick. It's always good. Yeah, yeah that's, the, that's the key. I mean, and, and the problem with Mars' atmosphere is it's so thin down low. I mean, it's fine for entering, but the trouble is it's, your job's not over with after, after you've done all that, all, after your heat shield has done its job. Now, you would, what we did on Curiosity rover and previous missions all the way back to the Viking missions in the 1970s was inflate a supersonic parachute. And we do that about two times the speed of sound. Now, Mars' speed of sound is a little bit slower than Earth's, but it's about comparable. So we slow down with a parachute to about 200 miles an hour. Okay, now this is with a full-size parachute. You're falling with a parachute on Mars as fast as a skydiver on this planet (laughs) flies without a parachute. So even though the parachute's very handy, even that doesn't complete the job. Unlike something like the Apollo missions that landed directly on parachutes right on in the ocean, or the Soyuz, which uses parachutes to within a within a meter of the ground, with that fire little tiny rockets just to, to cushion at the end. But still, we have these all this kind of Rube Goldberg uh, series of steps needed to slow our vehicles down: entry, heat shield, supersonic parachute, and then rockets at the end to lower us, slow us down, very much like you do land on the moon mm-hmm. with rockets firing backwards. The trouble is with a bigger parachute, larger vehicle should say, you're still going so fast, you've got to slow down enough so you can open the supersonic parachute. The supersonic parachute doesn't want to open much above two times the speed of sound because above that it starts to melt. Really, about, about Mach 2.5 to Mach 3, your actual fabric is actually starting to melt. So we need to slow down to the speed where we can open the parachute. To do that, we put this inflatable donut, and we open that about 10, 15, 20 seconds earlier in the parachute. So that par- so what that does is takes the vehicle from about four times the speed of sound, four or five times the speed of sound, down to about Mach 2. Those, and are, so, those are pretty good breaks in a little yeah, short period yes, like that. They are. They, they increase the, the whole idea is increasing the, the amount of drag area of your vehicle, the amount of stuff. You know, we, we really want this vehicle to look like a giant billboard <laughs> to slow it down, to, just to sort of to stop its motion through the air. And that's all these tricks are, is to take advantage of that. Now, 
would you do all this for a human scale mission? Probably not. That's a lot of stuff that has to work. And the, uh, the trouble with Mars, humans missions, the larger the scale of vehicle, the heavier it gets because the mass goes with the total volume of the vehicle. But the area only goes as a square as the length of the vehicle rather than as the cube. So what happens is as the vehicle gets bigger and bigger and bigger, this problem gets worse and worse and worse. Mm. So we need to even break the mold. And the, and the mold, what we're ultimately going to do, I think, with, with not that parachutes and, and science wouldn't be part of the ultimate equation, but very very likely it will we'll rely on another technology, a technology that SpaceX, for example, has been using lately, which is supersonic retropropulsion. We call it SRP, flying your rockets backward faster than the speed of sound, and having a special rocket configuration so that allows you to do that stably. Trouble with that is it takes a lot of fuel. The fuel weighs a lot more than a parachute. Yeah. And so that means you have to carry more. That means you need bigger rockets on Earth to, get, to push this vehicle up so you can get a boost from Earth to Mars. So this has been a, kind of the challenge we've got is how to, how to do all this stuff without requiring rockets that are far bigger than anything we can imagine. That's Rob Manning. He'll tell us more about landing on Mars after the break. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye here. I'd like to introduce you to Merck Boyan. Hello. He's been making all those fabulous videos, which hundreds of thousands of you have been watching. That's right. We're going to put all the videos in one place, Merck. Is that right? Planetary TV. So I can watch them on my television? No. So wait a minute. Planetary TV's not on TV? That's the best thing about it. They're all going to be online. You can watch them anytime you want. Where do I watch Planetary TV then, Merck? Well, you can watch it all at planetary.org slash TV. Random Space Fact! Nothing new about that for you, Planetary Radio fans, right? Wrong! Random Space Fact is now a video series, too. And it's brilliant, isn't it, Matt? I hate to say it, folks, but it really is, and hilarious. See, Matt would never lie to you, would he? I really wouldn't. A new Random Space Fact video is released each Friday at youtube.com slash planetary society. You can subscribe to join our growing community, and you'll never miss a fact. Can I go back to my radio now? Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. It's such fun to talk with Rob Manning of JPL, partly because his enthusiasm is so infectious, but also because he's always working on something wild and wonderful. Now he's chief engineer for development of NASA's Low Density Supersonic Decelerator, or LDSD. This two-part system for landing much bigger spacecraft on Mars will get another critical test high above the islands of Hawaii this summer. It's basically a repeat of last summer's test. It's hard. It's complicated to get down to the surface of Mars. It is. And the tests that are underway, I started to talk about the one that took place last summer, where a lot worked really well. Yes, it did. It was great. But the parachute, when it came out, it immediately started to tear, and it was in shreds before long. In fact, to our uh, surprise, the parachute started to tear Almost as soon as it came out of its bag. And, and you can see that in the video. We'll put up a link to this test. Yes. It is spectacular video. Yeah, it's, thank you. It, well, it was, uh, nothing like high-resolution high, and, and high-speed video to really help. And this, in fact, this, uh, the video that we have from this f- flight is better, far better than any other videos, any prior supersonic inflation. So we bring all the parachute experts together in a room. We're all staring at these. These are people who remember the details of the tests in the 1960s and 1970s. And they look at this and like, oh, this is interesting. This is 
oh, this this couldn't possibly have happened on our previous mission. I mean, they looked – their previous parachutes didn't break, by the way. There was at least – there was one where there was something that might be something similar to, to what we had. But um, our failures seemed to be right out of the bag, really mm-hmm. out, of, out, of the, out, of, out of the gate, as it were. So we're trying – so we said, what is going on? And we look, we're looking at the complicated dynamics of how the flow works. What interesting happens at supersonic speeds is – and it's really not the speed so much – well, it is the speed, but it's it's also the fact that air is very thin. It's moving very fast, but it's very thin. When you open a parachute in our thick part of our atmosphere where we like to live, the, the parachute doesn't open instantaneously fast. It, it has to fight the whole, has to move through the soup of an atmosphere. Mm. Up at, at 180,000 feet, the parachute opens up so fast that it's, it's it gets this whipping action. And so... And so we need to make sure that our parachute's designed for that. So what we did, so last year's test really was not so much about testing the parachute. We, we threw the parachute in there. We wanted to get a, a, test, a test out of it out there too. But this really was a, a shakeout test for the whole, this whole test infrastructure. Lifting the vehicle up on a balloon. No one's ever lifted a test vehicle with a big Star 48 rocket before. Uh, flying it out over the Pacific, aiming it properly, dropping it, spinning it up, firing the solid rockets, getting the right altitude, um, and then inflating the donut, and then pulling this parachute out of the can, which itself required some tricks that we pulled out, which are not typical of Mars missions, where we had to actually use an inflatable balloot, which is this kind of combination parachute and balloon, uh, that that we, we throw out the back and with a big mortar cannon, and that inflates, and that then itself, talk about Rube Goldberg, right? Pulling out this big uh, two hundred pound parachute, yeah, um, uh, and the, which allowed it to finally inflate. So this time we're doing almost exactly the same test. The difference is we have a different parachute. We looked carefully at the, the, what was going on with the dynamics and the physics of what was going on. We said, really, it needs to be stronger. Um, that's kind of obvious. But we, we wanted to know how much stronger. And that turns out to be a very difficult question to answer. But we could put bounds on how much stronger it needed to be. And that's what we did. And so we built, instead of a, a parachute, that w- there was a combination of a what's called a ring sail parachute, which has rings all the way from the skirt all the way up toward the center. Ring, these are concentric pieces of fabric and, and structure with air gaps in between them mm-hmm. to give it stability. Last summer, we didn't fly that. We flew a parachute that looked, much more, looked a little bit more like the parachutes we've, that, that we've flown traditionally. We call a disc gap band parachute, which is a big piece of fabric, which is the canopy with a hole in the middle. And outside the ring of the canopy, there's a, there's a gap and the, um, the suspension lines. And then a band, of, really, of fabric in the shape of a big cylinder goes around the, the, the parachute. And that's the parachutes, the designs we've been flying for all these years since the 1960s, because that's what was tested in the 1960s. What we tested last summer was a kind of a hybrid between the big uh, a disc and a ring sail parachute. Mm-hmm. And so we, this time we said, no, let's go all up. Let's not, let's not have a big sheets of fabric. Let's put these, the, the rings all the way up to the back, make it actually part of a hemisphere. It's not, not just a combination of a flat fabric, but, but, but actually cut the fabric in the shape of a hemisphere mm-hmm. and make sure that it has the right fullness. So as it, it inflates, it doesn't put too many forces on the actual Kevlar uh, structure because these parachutes have uh, not just the, the suspension lines that go all the way up to the top, but they also have concentric rings of cordage of Kevlar to hold it together. So that's really 
we've been learning far more than we ever thought we wanted to know about fabric and 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 sewing. Uh, and there, but there's some very subtle things you can do. Well, the good news is we tested this parachute. There were two different, slightly different designs that we tested uh, using our rocket sled up at NASA at, at the Navy's China Lake. Okay, Deputy let Center. me let me stop you there because I was going to bring that up for an old space geek like me uh-huh. to see rocket sleds I in know. use the way they used to put humans on them because yeah. we didn't know what would happen. It was just really cool. It is cool. And the folks up at China Lake, the, Navy, the Navy's China Lake Weapons Center up in uh, Ridgecrest, California, up in the kind of the high desert, they have done amazing things in helping us. They're very creative people. They are able to conjure up these structures and facilities and how to, how to use their many-mile-long rocket sled and, their, and, and old rockets. Some of these rockets, by the way, go back to were built in the 1960s. Oh, no and kidding. we're taking rockets that have been in storage for, for decades, <laughs> putting them on the back, and they light up. These solid rockets light up first time, and they're wonderful ways of pulling parachutes. So that you might say, what, what does a rocket and a parachute have to do with each other? Well, in this case, we, if we could, we would like to take the, our large parachute into a wind tunnel. For our previous parachutes, for Spirit and Opportunity rovers, MER and Curiosity, we use the world's largest wind tunnel called the NFACT. It's up at the NASA Ames facility. It's a huge wind tunnel, 80 by 100 feet. It's a big, big thing. But this thing, it's still too small mm. to test the parachutes we're looking at flying mm-hmm. that are that are almost 100 feet across. Right. So we need to figure out a, a different kind of wind tunnel. So we said, well. Ultimately, what you like to do is you like to pull the parachute through the air when it's fully inflated state to see how strong it is when it's fully inflated. So, so we imagine this, you know, a truck or a train pulling this parachute, but the parachute would drag on the ground. So we said, well, what if we just pull the parachute up in the sky and build ourselves a giant pulley and pull a rope through the pulley and pull the, 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 the rocket sleds horizontally while you pull the parachute straight down? You've just explained what I, when I watched that, sled test what i've said to myself what the heck is going on here it, there was a pulley it's a giant pulley it's a the pulley itself is about a one ton piece of steel uh and it's attached to a structure on a million pounds of of embedded in million pounds of concrete that we had to dig and pour in the desert on either side of the rocket sled it's supported there right above the rocket sled very tightly so it can handle a quarter million or even an eighth of a million pounds of rocket sled force to pull this parachute straight down. And uh, and that's exactly what we did. So the trick is we pull the parachute up with a helicopter, let the helicopter drop the parachute, the parachute inflated, and then the, then the test begins where we actually fire the rockets and pull the, the parachute straight down with as much force as we expect the test vehicle or a Mars mission to do plus a lot more because we wanted to just see how strong it was. And we did those tests twice uh, just in the last uh, last month. And so now this summer, we'll see essentially a repeat of last year's test, but with this upgraded parachute. Yes. Any changes to the SIADs, the the donuts? The SIADs going to be the same. It went perfectly last time. Mm. We said we're just going to do it again. We did change the test vehicle. We added new cameras. We changed the configuration. One of the things I wanted to do is, is be able to look at the shape of the parachute as it's inflating. So we put uh, stereo cameras on. We actually use GoPro 
cameras that will look from different angles across the vehicle. And from that, we'll, we'll, we hope to be able to deduce something about its shape from the stereo. You're, you're talking about off-the-shelf GoPro cameras? Yes. They ought to be giving you guys something for that. Oh, yes, I didn't hear about that. Um, they, they've been very good at helping us. Um, there are, uh, we work with other camera vendors, too. They're not, they're not the only ones. that, that for, for, the, for the machine vision, the high-quality, high-resolution high and high-speed cameras are, mm-hmm. are also amazing pieces of equipment that really help us. You've got two models of these Syads, a, a 6-meter and an 8-meter, but there are other things that, that set the two apart. Yeah. Now, we haven't tried testing the bigger one. Mm-hmm. The bigger Syad uh, is quite different. This do- other donut is very much like the bouncing airbags that we built for Pathfinder, Spirit, and Opportunity. Uh, basically, they're sewn Vectran membrane with a gas generator inside to, to keep the pressure up. In this case, what inflates them is our gas generators, multiple. And this is the 6-meter that you, you right. tested it before and you will again. Correct. Okay. The other one also has a gas drainer just to get it started, but it's it's so much larger that gas drainers can't really keep up. Hmm. So what, we, what this thing has is, is actually intake scoops that stick out into the breeze, and we let the ram air it keep the structure inflated. And so, ironically, the air itself keeps the structure, which then slows the vehicle down. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. This is going to let us get not just heavier stuff to Mars, but I've read that it will also maybe allow us to explore stuff at higher altitudes uh, that we haven't been able to reach. Yeah, that's true. And because of this atmosphere being so thin at Mars, we've been forced to land uh, so far, basically below sea level, we we, we define z- zero elevation as the a, kind of the average altitude on Mars. And so Mars, kind of like Earth, most people don't know that Earth, the, there is something called a hypsometric curve, which tells you how, what fraction of our land is at what elevation. Turns out Earth has these continents that stick up with mountains on them that produces a lot of high altitude stuff and a lot of stuff at sea level, of course. But there's another big fraction of Earth, in fact, a far larger fraction of the Earth, is down well below sea level, the bottom of the ocean. So there's really two sets of altitudes, below sea level and above sea level, and not much in between on this planet. And Mars is very similar. The northern half of Mars, the lowlands of Mars, are very, very low, almost like ocean bottoms. And then the southern highlands of Mars stick up very, very high. So our our missions have been so far, we've been kind of forced to, to land at the margin between the highlands and the lowlands. The highlands have really become off-limits because there just isn't enough air there. So one way to, to slow down, to get there, is to slow down faster. And mm. bigger parachutes and these other devices would allow us to land something like Curiosity, yeah. land at one, two, or, or even higher clo- uh, kilometers above sea level, or zero, I should say. What all of this says to me, all of this amazing work and what you guys are continuing to develop, it really puts the lie to, you know, folks who like to say, ah, if we really wanted to get people to Mars, why aren't we putting, why aren't we doing the research? Why aren't we doing the work to get there? It sure sounds like, at least here, with this system, this work is very much underway. Yes, and, and, and not just here at JPL. There are other places at NASA where people are working other tricks. For example, deployable decelerators, or deployable heat shields, inflatable heat shields. Parts of NASA are working closely with SpaceX on their on their return or their first stage, hmm. which is a supersonic propulsion test, really, of that technology. So we are trying to mine as much as we can, and throughout NASA, um, we are really taking this problem seriously of how to get bigger things to Mars, including someday people. 
So this is going to carry us out for some decades into the future and maybe, maybe get humans there. Knock on wood. Yes. <laughs> That's our intent. Rob, it is always a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming Thank back you. on. Thank you, Matt. It's great to talk to you, too. Rob Manning, he is the chief engineer. Now he goes from chief engineer job to chief engineer job. Now it's for the low-density supersonic decelerator project that we've been talking about. Nobody knows more about or uh, has had greater success in getting stuff down to the surface of Mars. We'll be right back with this week's edition of What's Up? It's one of those rare occasions. I am sitting across from the Director of Science and Technology in the Planetary Society studio slash meat locker. <laughs> but that's how we have good steaks on hand <laughs> at all times. <laughs> that's important. It's Bruce Betts, which means it's time for What's Up. It's good to see you. It'd be good to sit across from you, and I can hand you your gift. Wait till you Yay, see. Yay, when do we do that? When do we do that? You know when it happens. It's not for a few minutes yet. So let's get through the rest of it, and you'll get your present. All right. Sheesh. So Venus, super bright. Low in the west. In the evening. Jupiter, gradually getting closer and closer to it, high in the south in the early evening. In a few months, they'll be partying together. Right now, although it's going to be really tough to see, low in the west, you need a really clear view to the horizon. Uh, not that long after sunset, in just the right timing, you can see Mars and Mercury very close together, particularly on April 21st and 22nd. Mercury will be the less red the white one that's much brighter and uh, mercury will stay up through mid-may mars will keep vanishing away on to this week in space history in 1970 apollo 13 returned safely to earth after a recreational jaunt in the heavens <laughs> yeah let's do this again sometime <laughs> <laughs> and then in uh, 1972 this week apollo 16 was launched off on its way to successfully land on the moon on to Random Space Fact! Captured with a grandeur that Skype just isn't up to. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, after Uranus's discovery, it was six years before the first moons of Uranus were discovered. But after Neptune was discovered, it was only 17 days until its largest moon, Triton, was discovered. Just better technology by that time? It was many decades later, so I'm guessing it was a combination of better technology and Triton is just a heck of a lot bigger and brighter than the Uranian moons. So even though it's much farther away, it probably helped a lot. Another great random space fact. And by the way, I watched the one you did in this very room about, <laughs> about why you get a blood moon when, when there's a total lunar eclipse. Very funny. Very clever. Cool. People can check out all those at planetary.org slash RSF. Or on our, our uh, YouTube channel. There's even a refrigerator in it, which makes us feel right at home at the moment. <laughs> there is indeed. Uh, okay, in the contest, uh, I asked you, what constellation appears on the flags of Australia and New Zealand? How'd we do? Huge response. This is <laughs> such fun. I put this out there on the website. It said, all right, you patriotic Southern Hemisphere types. <laughs> and boy, did they turn out. We got a whole bunch from uh, the folks down under. First of all, though, our winner, not from down under, from Champaign, Illinois, a first-time winner, Nicholas Hess. He said, the Crux Constellation, also known as the Southern Cross. What yeah. else? Yes, indeed. 
So, Nicholas, we are going to send you a Planetary Radio T-shirt, and uh, thanks for entering. All right, now, first of all, some of those folks from down there on the, the bottom half of the planet, or the top half, if you turn us upside down, uh, <laughs> this from Luke Rasborsek. Luke Rasborsek. He says, I can triple down on my Southern Hemisphere credentials. The Australian flag features the Southern Cross, as does the state flag of Victoria, and the main train station in his hometown of Melbourne is Southern Cross Station. Wow. So they wow. are. Wow, very, very impressive. <laughs> they are. They are all about the crux. All about the crux. <laughs> Triple right. crux. Just to represent the Kiwis, uh, we, we will mention this single one. There were many others. From This one is from Kerry Hartley in Christchurch, New Zealand, who uh, first of all says, Kia ora, Matt and Bruce. Hello from Christchurch. <laughs> Thanks for showing uh, some love to us Southern Hemisphere folks and for keeping us all inspired. She mentions that the Maori name for the Southern Cross is Te Punga, the anchor of the canoe Waka constellation, or Te Waka Otama Riti. Wow, you did that very nicely. He says you. The Maori now have declared war on me, I think, but <laughs> we'll see. Anyway, thank you, for, thank you for the message. This one, boy, they were coming in from all over the world, from a regular listener, uh, Wojtek uh, Navilek in the Czech Republic. He says that uh, he noticed that the Australian flag version of the Southern Cross has one more star than the one for New Zealand. And he draws from this, probably New Zealand has worse light pollution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's the reason. This actually came from a whole bunch of people, uh, Don Campbell, a whole bunch of others, who basically said, thanks a lot, Matt and Bruce. Now I'm going to have that damn David Crosby singing in my head for the next week. Oh, I gosh. I Wow, I feel terrible. Mark Little had a twist on that. He said, any chance you guys could sing a few lines of that uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash song? There might be a Planetary Radio t-shirt in it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Last one, I promise. This from Andrew Jones in Finland, but he's a fan of English cricket. He says he also knows the Australian national team sings Under the Southern Cross I Stand after victories. He says they've sung this many, many times at our expense. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. Wow, that was a very uh, lovely international response. Wasn't it? Yeah. Now, I know pleasing. that was just a sampling. Well, this one goes out to all our listeners in the Neptune system. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it, Neptunians. <laughs> <laughs> and Tritonians. Triton. That, that large moon, that wacky moon, the biggest moon in the solar system that orbits retrograde, going the opposite way, the planet's rotating. What is its orbital period? What is Triton's orbital period? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Get us your entry. All right. You have until the 21st. That would be April 21st, Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. Here's the prize. It was so popular that Jim Bell has uh, gone out on a limb and gotten us a few more copies of his book, The Interstellar Age, his wonderful personal account and, and beautiful general history of the 40-year Voyager mission, and he will sign it once again. Speaking of prizes, do you remember on last week's show what you said we should all think about? Uh, no, of course no. not. Lip balm. Wait, lip balm, yes. That's right, lip balm. So I was at JPL, right, this week to oh. capture the conversation that we listened to today. Right. So here is what I picked up for you this time from the JPL store. Oh, get out. That is so cool. <laughs> JPL lip balm. It, it Giant JPL, red on black. 
Oh, there you can hear it. <laughs> I love the you sound of the cap, don't you? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, let me, let me t- oh. Okay, you go ahead and do that. Mm. Oh, it, mm, it's space flavored. <laughs> cheese? Green cheese? Mm. Say goodnight, Bruce. Goodnight, Bruce. Oh, I'm sorry. Everybody go out there. I'm so excited. I can't think straight. <laughs> Everybody go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about your favorite sound-absorbing material. Thank you, and good night. Actually, it's kind of a weird flavor. What does it say on the side there? Feel the love. I kid you not. It says feel the love, and then it says spearmint. <laughs> we feel the love. He's Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by the Mars Landing members of the Society. Danielle Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle created our theme music. I'm Matt Kaplan. Join us next week at the Planetary Defense Conference, Clear Skies. Clear Skies.